This is our last week in the in-between period of David's kingdom. Back in 1 Samuel 16, the prophet Samuel anointed the shepherd boy David, picking him out as the one chosen by God to replace Saul as king of all Israel. It's now, at this point in the story, been probably about 15 years since that promise. And after many ups and downs, Saul has finally died and David has finally become king, but not of all Israel, as God promised, only of the southern tribe of Judah. The other 11 tribes are being ruled by Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was put on the throne by Saul's cousin, Abner, the commander of the army of Israel. So David is a king, but he's still not the king. God's promise still hasn't been fulfilled in its entirety, and David is still waiting. So as we consider the events of these two pretty wild chapters, we'll be thinking about some of the similarities between David's situation and our own, as we too wait for God to accomplish everything that he has promised to do through Jesus Christ. Last week, we read about how after both David and Ishbosheth were made kings, a war ensued between their two kingdoms. In the opening battle, Abner's side lost, but in the retreat, Abner killed Asahel, the brother of Joab, the commander of Judah. And our reading ended last week with this summary of the situation from verse one of chapter three. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And today in verse six, we read that within the weakening house of Saul, Abner was making himself strong. So even as the kingdom of Israel as a whole is losing the war, Abner is becoming the most powerful man in that kingdom. How exactly is Abner making himself strong? I think part of the answer comes in the next verse, in verse seven, where Ishbosheth accuses Abner of going into Saul's concubine. In the ancient Near East, a concubine was a woman, normally a slave, who served a man as a lifelong sexual partner, but with less social and legal status than a wife. A powerful king could have several wives and several concubines. And when a king died, one way that a potential successor to the throne could strengthen his claim was to claim the old king's wives or concubines as his own to claim them sexually, probably by force. Unfortunately, we'll see other examples of this evil practice in 2 Samuel. So if Abner has really gone into Rizpah, as Ishbosheth is accusing, then he would be using her to build up his own claim to the throne. And this is presumably the main reason Ishbosheth objects. Now the text doesn't say explicitly whether the charge is true and different commentators disagree about their opinions. In his response to Ishbosheth in verse eight, you'll see that Abner neither admits nor denies the charge. Actually, instead of defending himself, he seems outraged at the very idea that Ishbosheth would accuse him. I'll read from verse eight. Am I a dog's head for Judah? I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brother and to his friends and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman 
to my ear, it sounds like Abner is saying, remember that you are where you are today, Ishbosheth, only because I've been nice enough to help you get there. So what makes you think you can tell me who I can or can't sleep with? And in that moment of anger, Abner decides that he's through with Ishbosheth and with the whole house of Saul. In verses 9 and 10, he says, God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Now, we know for sure that Abner is not here suddenly learning about God's promise to David for the first time, right? Remember, Abner had been the one to introduce David to Saul after David's miraculous victory over the Philistine giant Goliath back in 1 Samuel 17. Already then, we saw signs of God's special presence with David. And Abner and David served together in Saul's staff right up until Saul chased David away out of jealousy, jealous that God was with David in everything he did. Abner had been at the dinner that night that Saul tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, with his spear, pinning him against the wall, when he tried to kill Jonathan just for defending David. And Abner spent years helping Saul hunt David down in the wilderness to kill him. So in all of these contexts, Abner would have heard, he would have heard of God's promise to make David king, and he would have seen with his own eyes ample evidence of God's presence with David, protecting him and keeping him from evil. And after Saul's death, as we saw last week, when Abner finally saw David made king of Judah, his response wasn't to join in acclaiming David as king, but to set up Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as a rival king. So when we hear Abner talk about God's promise in this chapter, we have to wonder why the sudden interest? Now, perhaps Abner has had a guilty conscience for a long time. Maybe he's been wanting to acknowledge David, but out of family loyalty, he's been sticking with Saul and even his son. But finally, this hurtful accusation tips him over the edge. That's possible. Or else, and personally, I think this is more likely, Abner has been deliberately rejecting God's promise to David this whole time. And he accepts it now only because that promise suddenly seems to align with his own selfish interests. It's going to give him a chance to get out of the crumbling house of Saul and get in on the ground floor of David's up and coming kingdom. Either way, notice that Abner explicitly thinks it's within his power to grant David the kingdom God has promised him. So he sends messengers to David in verse 12 saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David agrees, but on one condition. Abner must prove both that he's serious about helping David and that he's really strong enough to bring the kingdom of Israel uh, over to David, strong enough to deliver what he's promising. And the test will be whether he can bring David his first wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul. We'll say more about Michal in a moment, but for now, let's just keep following Abner. So if you look at verses 14 and 15, you'll see that after making this request of Abner, David actually makes a formal request to Ishbosheth, to the king himself. 
and it's the king who grants this request. This shows us that even after this outburst against Ishbosheth, Abner is strong enough in that kingdom to exert pressure on Ishbosheth and get him to send his sister over to his enemy David. So having proven his value to David, Abner then proceeds to tour the country, talking up David's cause with all the elders of Israel and even the elders of his tribe Benjamin, saying in verses 17 and 18, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And finally, after this tour, Abner comes to Hebron, to David's capital, for a festive peace conference. And they agree on a plan and a set of terms. We don't know what the terms of their covenant were, but it seems a fairly safe guess that Abner would have sought and would have been promised some position of prominence within David's administration in exchange for his services. Abner departs Hebron, as the text says three times, in peace, heading back to Israel to oversee the final stages of this transfer of power. And at this point in the story, it seems like Abner is doing pretty well, doesn't it? He's made himself as strong as he possibly can be within the house of Saul, stronger even than the king, it seems. And now he's just one short journey away from accomplishing that which he swore in his anger he would do, transferring the throne from Ishbosheth to David. And if he can pull this off, presumably David will be grateful to him forever, and his position will be even stronger than it ever was. But just then, David's commander Joab returns from a raid. And hearing that the man who killed his brother has just come and gone in peace, he explodes. Joab accuses Abner before David, and then, apparently before David can even reply, he dashes off and sends messengers to go get Abner and tell him to come back and wait at the cistern of Sirah. Abner complies. Probably he's innocently assuming that these messengers came from David. And there at the cistern, Abner, mighty Abner, who was making himself strong, who thought it was within his hand to grant God's promise to David, dies. He dies, as David laments in verse 33, like a fool, by a cheap shot from Joab. So here's the first point of today's sermon. God alone can fulfill God's promises. Abner was unable to accomplish God's promise by his own hand, and so are we. As we wait for our king, Jesus, to be revealed as the true king of the whole world, it's good for us to remember that it's not up to us to make this happen. There's nothing we can do to make Jesus come back faster. The father knows when he will send his son again in glory. And Jesus will not fail to return at the right time, to put death and evil under his feet, to raise the dead and to restore the whole earth. And in the meantime, the already present realities of God's kingdom depend on the work of Jesus Christ, on his taking human flesh, dying for us, rising again to new life and sending us his spirit. Your access to God in prayer, your growth in faith and love, 
your fellowship with other believers. All of these things depend on his work, not on your work or on mine. So God alone fulfills God's promises. We can't do that work for him. We can only gratefully receive both the promise and the fulfillment with thanks and praise. So let's keep looking in the story. When David finds out that Joab has murdered Abner, he's furious. Now we might expect him to be furious, that the plan he's just hatched with Abner to receive the kingdom of Israel has fallen through. That would make sense. But interestingly, he seems far more focused on the injustice done to Abner than on how it will affect him personally. David hesitates to execute Joab, as he will later punish Ishbosheth's assassins, Rechab and Baana. He tells his servants in verse 39 that while I was gentle today, the sons of Zeruiah, that's Joab and Abishai, are more severe than I. The word our translation renders gentle can also mean weak. And I think that's the sense here. David senses that with only half a kingdom under his control and in the middle of a civil war, he's in no position to, ex to put an execution order against his fierce commander. But what he does do shows in his own way how serious David is about what has just happened and shows his deep commitment to God and to God's justice. The first thing that David does is to curse Joab and his house. And of course, in the Bible, cursing someone means more than just cussing them out. It means invoking God against them, asking God, as David does in verse 39, to repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And next, he forces Joab to serve as a mourner in Abner's funeral, to mourn publicly for the man that he has just killed. And David himself laments and fasts and weeps all day for Abner. So what's behind David's strong response here? It's not intended as damage control for his own reputation or as a publicity stunt to please the people. Rather, as God's anointed king, he was mourning an unjust death to model God's justice to the people, to show them that God was not pleased with Joab's vengeful violence. But without David needing to plan it this way, God used David's faithful response for David's own good and for the good of all the people of Israel. In verses 36 and 37, we read that all the people took notice of what the king did and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people, that is David's own people in Judah and all Israel, that's the other kingdom, they all took notice of it and understood that day that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. By letting the people of Israel see David's faithfulness, God is preparing the way for their consent to David's kingship in chapter five next week. David is just trying his best to navigate the ups and downs of this wild chapter faithfully and peaceably. And God is using David's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to David. So here's the second point. Only God can fulfill God's promises, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. Waiting for God to fulfill his promises doesn't mean sitting around. 
Waiting for Jesus doesn't mean sitting around. It means living. Living each day in the way that Jesus has called us to live. In ways that bear witness to what he has done and that give the world around us a taste of his coming kingdom. David certainly wasn't perfect, and we certainly aren't either. But to the extent that David was faithful, God used his faithfulness for good. And the same will be true for us. So maybe you want to grow in your own faith or to understand something about God better or to finally put some pernicious sin behind you or to be a better witness to your friends and family. Well, I want all of those things too. I can't and you can't make any of those things happen. Only God can give faith. Only God can give knowledge of himself. Only God can free us from sin, and only he can lead our friends and family to himself. But that doesn't mean we do nothing, right? It means we open ourselves and our lives to God in every way we know how. With patient trust that he will come and work in us. Not because we've made him come and work in us, but because he's good. And he loves to do good in and through us. We can't predict when and how God will use us, but if we're faithful to him, then we can be sure we can trust that he will work in and through our faithfulness, just as he did for David. So on to chapter four. With Abner gone, verse one tells us that Ishbosheth's courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. They can all see that with Abner out of the way, the already weakened house of Saul is on its last legs. It's now only a matter of time before David takes over and not in a negotiated peace, as was about to happen, but on whatever terms he sets. The man on the throne is a coward. His courage has failed. All of Saul's legitimate sons, except for Ishbosheth, seem to have died with him in battle, right? We saw that at the end of 1 Samuel. Rizpah, the concubine, had borne Saul several sons, and we'll read about them later in chapter 21. But since she was only a concubine and not a wife, her sons aren't in a strong position to inherit or to lead. So this seems to leave, after Ishbosheth, only dear Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, still just a kid, and due to a tragic accident, unable to walk, let alone to lead troops in battle. So things are not looking good for the house of Saul. Looking around at this state of affairs, two of Ishbosheth's captains, Rechab and Ba'ana, decide to get proactive. If David's victory is inevitable, then why not put ourselves in a position to benefit from it, they think. Sooner or later, somebody's going to kill Ishbosheth, and Rechab and Ba'ana want to be those guys. So they sneak into the king's house while Ishbosheth is taking his midday nap which sounds nice until you see what happens next, they stab him to death and they cut off his head. And they make a midnight run with the head for David's court in Hebron. When they arrive, they present their trophy to David and they announce proudly in verse eight, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But nobody knows better than David 
that God's vengeance is not something humans can take into their own hands. Remember back in 1 Samuel 24, how when David was on the run from Saul, and Saul happened to wander alone and defenseless into the cave where David and his men were hiding to relieve himself, David's men had urged him on in actually pretty similar language to what Rechab and Banna use. They said, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. But David saw through that temptation. In chapter 26, when David had snuck into Saul's camp with Joab's other brother, Abishai, while Saul was sleeping, Abishai had urged David on again. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. But again, David resisted that interpretation of events. He would not kill Saul, even though Saul was hunting him down to kill him. He would not seize the kingdom by force. Instead, by God's grace, David trusted that God would be the one to save him from Saul and to establish him as king. It was this conviction that enabled David not to celebrate Saul's death when he heard about it in chapter one, as the man who brought him the news and claimed to have killed Saul expected, but instead to mourn Saul's death. And that same attitude that David had towards Saul, he now displays towards Ishbosheth. He knows that God will give him Ishbosheth's throne, but he knows the throne is God's to give and not his to take. The fulfillment of God's promise must come from God's hand and not from the hand of any mere human. And if we didn't have that same conviction, it would be easy for us to think about the story this way. Well, Rechab and Banna's deed seems really to help God fulfill his promise. So it must be that God approves of what they did and that God really did avenge himself on Saul by their hand, just like they said. But no, with the eyes of faith, we and David can see something much more subtle going on. And here's the third point. On the one hand, God is using the death of Ishbosheth to bring David one step closer to the promised throne. But on the other hand, we see that this doesn't mean that God willed the evil deed, the cowardly murder. God used this circumstance, but he didn't will it or cause it. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. This means God is at work in every circumstance for the good of those who love him, even bringing good things out of evil circumstances. But God never causes or wills those evil circumstances, only the good that comes out of them. In Rechab and Banna's eyes, Ishbosheth's death seems like a good outcome for David. But in God's eyes, the end doesn't justify the means. And what makes a course of action right or wrong is not only whether the outcome it will produce seems good, but whether the action itself shows love of God and love of neighbor. And needless to say, killing your neighbor while he takes a nap so that you can use his head for your own career advancement is very far from God's definition of love. So while God uses Rechab and Banna's evil deed for the good of David and of his whole people Israel, 
Neither God nor David approves of the deed, and neither of them are fooled by their pious words. God and David see the brother's deed for what it is, the cowardly and unjust killing of a man who had done them no wrong. And so David executes the two, the two assassins. So I've already spoken highly of David's faithfulness in his response to the deaths of Abner and of Ishbosheth. But at the same time, these chapters show us David's profound limits. We've heard it said many times in this sermon series, and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll hear it many times more, that David points us to Jesus, but he's not Jesus. And even while his response to the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth gives us a glimpse of the character of God, who weeps over injustice and who wants to bless his enemies, not to kill them. In another area of his life, David is acting quite apart from the wisdom of God. And I'm talking about David's polygamy, his multiple marriages that we read about in the first part of chapter three. Now, as far as I can tell, the Old Testament doesn't explicitly forbid polygamy. And neither does this passage explicitly condemn David's polygamy. Of course, many of the big names in the Old Testament are men with multiple wives or even concubines. Not only David and Saul, but also Abraham and Jacob and many, many others. But in many more subtle ways, the Bible as a whole and the Old Testament do give a pretty clear condemnation of polygamy. For one thing, we never in the Bible seem to meet a happy polygamous family, do we? <laughs> Think, for example, of the famous tensions between Abraham's wife, Sarah, and his concubine, Hagar. <laughs> or closer in time to our own story, we could think of 1 Samuel 1, where we saw Elkanah, right, with his two wives. His fertile wife, Penina, who was bullying all the time his childless wife, Hannah. Now, even more fundamentally than that, though, the Old Testament shows that when God created humanity in sexual difference, male and female, both in his image, he gave them the gift of marriage as a union in which the two become one flesh, the two. And throughout the Old Testament, in books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the Song of Songs, just to name a few, marriage is used as an image for the relationship between the Lord and his people always in a context that emphasizes monogamy as part of that relationship. Just as husband and wife are meant to have an exclusive relationship, so the Lord gives himself completely to his people Israel and asks that she not be unfaithful by going after other gods. And both of these themes, the two becoming one flesh and marriage as an image of God's relationship with his people come together in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 5, where Paul quotes that line from Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, and describes that loving monogamous union of husband and wife as a sign of the great mystical union of Christ and his church. Now, of course, David lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He didn't have the New Testament or even most of the Old Testament. In the ancient Near East, where David lived, polygamy was normal among those who could afford it, and especially among kings. 
And as we all know, in different times, in different places, in different cultures, marriage has meant different things to different people. But God's design for marriage has never changed. It wasn't different back then than it is now. God's intention for marriage was always from the beginning, from creation, that the loving union of one husband and one wife should be a sign to the whole human race of the union between the one God and his one holy people. Of course, we can understand how from David's vantage point, that might have been harder to see than from ours, okay? But even if David's ignorance might excuse him, it doesn't make what he did right or okay. But David's polygamy shows us the limits of his faithfulness to God in still another way. Part of what ancient Near Eastern kings found useful about marriage in general was that it allowed them to form alliances with other families, other tribes and kingdoms. And polygamy, of course, was super useful because it meant you could form many, many different alliances of this kind. And I think this is also what we see David doing in chapter three, verses two to five. We've already met the first two wives mentioned there, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And as Roger pointed out last week, both of those women are from Judah, David's home base. And Abigail had even been the skillful manager of her useless first husband's large estate in that country. So David's association with each of these women must be giving him valuable credibility with his Judahite base. The third wife in that list, in the second half of verse 3, is Ma'akah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. Gesher was a pagan kingdom in the north of Israel, to the north of Israel. So by marrying into the Gesherite royal family, David is presumably gaining a valuable ally. Between Judah on the south and Gesher on the north, if they combine forces, Ishbosheth's kingdom will be forced to fight a war on two fronts. This is a big get for David. Now, we don't know much about the other three women mentioned here, Haggith, Abital, and Egla, but we can guess that David had his reasons for entering into each of these marriages. And this kind of political maneuvering seems also to be part, at least, of what's behind his demand to Abner and Ishbosheth that they return to him Michal, his first wife. Remember that Michal was Saul's daughter, whom he had offered to David back in 1 Samuel 18 in a ploy to get David killed by giving this outrageous bride price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. But to Saul's surprise, David got the foreskins and Saul was forced to go through with the marriage. Saul, of course, kept right on trying to kill David. And eventually David escaped from Saul's court, actually with Michal's help, as you may remember. And when David was gone, Saul eventually gave her in marriage to another man, to this Paltiel, son of Laish. So why did Saul do this, marry her off again? Because having his arch enemy David as his royal son-in-law was both a profound personal embarrassment and a profound political liability. By remarrying Michal to Paltiel, Saul was effectively cutting off the connection between David and his own royal house. So now, by asking for Michal back, David may be hoping to reestablish that connection, to remind the people of Israel that he's one of Saul's sons too, not some outsider, but a royal insider. 
Now, of course, David may also have really missed Mika, really felt love for her. I hope that's true. Although the fact that David has married six other women during their separation doesn't exactly commend his devotedness. And though Mikal had once loved and helped David, her future interactions with him coming up in chapter six will be quite negative and quite tense. Whatever their personal relationship may or may not have been like, the only emotion that we see in this text is shown not by Mikal or by David, but by Mikal's other husband, Paltiel, who follows after her across the country weeping until Abner eventually tells him to buzz off. So if I'm interpreting David's intentions correctly, then all of these marriages are part of David's own personal plan to strengthen himself. Yes, he trusts in God to place him on the throne as promised, but just to give God some options. He's forging foreign alliances, consolidating his local power base, reasserting his connection to the house of Saul. And he's doing all of this by polygamy by living out marriage in a way that falls quite far short of God's design. And what's perhaps most striking about David's seven marriages mentioned in this chapter, and there will be more marriages later, plus some concubines, is how little they actually turn out to help David. If David was marrying all of these women to make himself strong, the irony is that in fact these marriages seem mainly to have weakened his house. Take a look again at chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. They're not primarily a list of David's wives, but of his sons. And we see that with each of these six new wives, he has a son, though none by Michal. Now this sounds like a really good thing. While the house of Saul has been reduced to the cowardly king Ishbosheth and his crippled five-year-old nephew Mephibosheth, the house of David is booming. It's chock full of eligible successors. But as we continue through 2 Samuel, we will see that none of the sons mentioned here turn out to be God's chosen successor to David. Three of them, Kiliab, Shephatiah, and Ithraim, we'll never hear from again. And the other three, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, will all in their own way cause deep pain to David's family and deep division to David's kingdom. Adonijah will try to set himself up as king while his father David lies on his deathbed. That story is in 1 Kings chapter 1. And as for Amnon and Absalom, I'll leave it to more capable preachers to tell you about them later in this series. So what David thought he was doing to strengthen himself turned out really to cause him all sorts of trouble and heartache. So here's the fourth point. When we try to make ourselves strong apart from God's will, not only does it not work, but it actually hurts us and others. Of course, we do this kind of thing all the time, don't we? We want to be strong, successful, financially independent, well-liked, thought of as smart, and sometimes ignorantly or sometimes with full knowledge of what we're doing, these desires lead us away from God's design for human life and towards other designs of our own making. David warped God's design for marriage, turning it from a beautiful sign of the union between God and his people into a blunt tool for strengthening his own kingdom. And if we're not careful, 
we will find ourselves warping God's design for our relationships with other people. So that instead of loving and serving the people God has put in our lives, we end up using and abusing them for our own ends. If we want to reflect God's goodness to others and to ourselves, then we need to rely not on our own moral intuitions or on our own grand schemes, but on God and on his design for our lives and relationships as he reveals them to us in scripture. Now, in the end, God did fulfill his promise to David. We'll see that next week. But God didn't do it the way Abner expected, or the way Rechab and Banna expected, or the way David himself expected. He did it his own way. In the middle of everything that happened in these two crazy chapters, the good and the bad, David's faithfulness and David's foolishness, Abner's ambition and Joab's vengeance and Rechab and Banna's murder, God brought good out of all of it. God's promise to David was good, and his promises to us in Jesus Christ are infinitely better. And God will always fulfill his promises. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.